welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. What are we looking at? Do you remember? Nehemiah, hooray! On the very, very, very last chapter of Nehemiah, which is chapter 13. It's an amazing book. Fantastic. And on the last one, hooray. Right. Uh, Christians, especially evangelical Christians, especially preachers, get told off lots and lots and lots and lots of times for being very emotional and to whipping people up and making them be feel so emotional. And so a lot of times the church is afraid to get people emotional. But I want you to become uh, emotional because in this passage I not only want you to feel, I mean not only want you to hear what's being said, but I want you to feel what this passage is talking about. And the way I want you to uh, feel what this passage is about is I want you to imagine a scenario, okay? I want you to imagine that you're driving home from work one evening. And you arrive in your driveway, you get out of your car, you put your key in the door, and as you open up your door, your eyes are met with the fact that your house has been turned upside down and ransacked. You run into your lounge, you see that the curtains have been ripped down and ripped to shreds. You, go, you see that your, your television has been knocked over and smashed to bits. Your three-piece suite has been ripped to shreds. There's stuff in and fluff everywhere. The first thing that's on your mind is your valuables. So you run up to your bedroom. Thankfully, all your jewellery, handbags, wallets, credit cards, none of it's been stolen. Nothing from your house has been stolen. But as you turn around from your cupboards, you see that your bedclothes have been ripped to shreds and even your mattress has, been, has got holes in it. And you know the rest of the house is exactly like that. Now tell me, how would you feel? Shattered? What, because you're worn out? My hard day at work. Anything else? It's good? Hey? Angry? Confused, yeah? Angry? Shocked? Very good. Excellent, excellent. Let's take. What did you say? Frightened. Ah, oh, very good, very good. Right, excellent. Marvellous. These are good things. Let's take the scenario a bit further, okay? You decide to go downstairs and go to your kitchen. You open your kitchen door. Again, your microwave's been knocked on the floor and smashed. Your cupboard doors are open and every packet imaginable, whether it's biscuits, soap powder, washing up liquid, whatever you have in packets that are in your uh, cupboards in your kitchen have been ripped open and all the contents are sprawled all over the floor. And in the middle of your kitchen floor is sat your pet dog. And you know that it's him that's done all the damage because of all the slobber and saliva that's over everything. Now, how do you feel? You'd be angry, still fuming. Yeah, you get angry. Yeah, angry, fuming, frustrated. Yeah, fantastic, marvellous. This story is actually a true story that I've just said. Yeah, go on, Martin, we're going to. Hey? Yeah. 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 
story. A friend of mine, um, he went, he's my best man at my wedding, he went to um, help a church out for one month, one month, on the first day of the month, never been there before, the church said, we've found a couple that have you for, for a month, to stay with that couple. And so, when he arrived, they said, we have a rule in our house, the very last person to leave the house in the morning must put the dog in the kitchen. So in the morning, he was the very last person. It's first morning, remember this. He's the very first day, got a month to go. First morning, he's the last one, and he remembers, put the dog in the kitchen. So he puts the dog in the kitchen, and having a, a heart, he thought it's a bit cruel to shut the door too, so he left it ajar, and that's what everybody came home to, the scenario I said. So I'm just glad I wasn't him, and had a month to live there, that's all. But anyway, like I said, I want you... To hold on to that emotion as if you just open the door and your house has been ransacked. Because this is what this passage is going to be talking about, okay? It's Nehemiah chapter 13. And I'm going to read to you the whole of chapter 13. Now you might say, Malcolm, that's mega long. That's going to take at least an hour to read. Listen, if you read earlier on in chapter, I think it's chapter 8 actually, the people of Jerusalem, they came together. And they wanted to hear God's word. They were so eager to listen to God's word. And it was read to them for at least three hours a day. I'm going to put you through for about three or four minutes of it. So don't think it's that boring, honestly. But it's, uh, so it's good meat stuff. This is the word of God for our lives. Okay, chapter 13, verse 1 says this. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there was... And there was found written that no Amorite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water. Uh, mind you, can you a drink of water, please? Be really nice, drink of water, be lovely. Ah, be ah, lovely, wife. Okay. Same drink. <laughs> with food and water. Um, <clears throat> but had hired Balaam to call down a curse on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Elisiaab, whatever his name is, a priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and, who, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of, of grain, new wine and oil um, prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. You've got to remember, by the way, folks, this book of Nehemiah is a diary. It's not just somebody sitting down writing about what happened. This is actually a journal. We have been given a privilege by having Nehemiah's diary. So sometimes it reads a bit funny. It's his personal thoughts as he's writing his diary. Diary, okay? So while, I, while this was going on, I, that's Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. For the, for the 32nd year of Antaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing 
Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and I put back into them the equipment of the house of God and the grain offerings and the incense. I also learnt that the positions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers uh, responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is this house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All, Jude, all Judea, Judea brought the tithes of grain, new wine, oil into the storerooms. I put... Uh, a priest, a scribe uh, and another guy in charge of the storerooms and uh, made another guy in charge uh, an assistant because of these men were considered trustworthy they were made responsible for the distributing of the supplies to their brothers remember me for this O oh my God for, and do not blot out what I have faith, so faithfully done in the house of my God and its services in those days I saw men in Judea treading wine presses, presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads. They were bringing it all into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing their fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judea. I rebuked the nobles of Judea and said to them, What is this wicked thing you're doing, um, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought this calamity upon us and, and upon our city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by des desecrating the Sabbath. When, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers and all kinds of goods uh, spend the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O oh my God, and show mercy to me according to my great love. Moreover, on those days I saw men of Judea who had married women from Ashod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashod or another language of other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judea. I rebuked them and called curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor I to take their daughters in marriage to our sons or for yourselves. This was not because of marriages like that. So was it not because of marriages like that of Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear, how, sorry, must we hear now that you too are going to do this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jodah, son of Elishabab, the high priest, the son-in-law to Senebab, the Horite, sorry, uh, 
So one of the sons of Judea, son of Ishmael, the high priest, was son-in-law to, to Sinbad the Horab, and I drove him out away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and, and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites and everything foreign, and I assigned them duties to their own task. I made provisions and contributions of wood at the designated times and for the first fruits. First fruits. Remember me with favour, O oh my God. Uh, yeah, lovely. Right, a bit of a long mouthful, but uh, so I've got one. Yeah, I'll just chuck it in there. That's all right. So I like Heather's germ. That's why we kiss. Right. Previous to that chapter, we learnt. Oh, fantastic! You're marvellous. Right. Mm. Okay. Previous to that chapter, we learnt how Nehemiah dramatically changed the people of Jerusalem. Once. They were a deflated bunch of good-for-nothings, but now they were a united people who longed to live up to God's standards. In fact, they so longed to want to live their lives as God wanted them to live their lives, that if they failed in any way, they would cry like babies and go off and sulk for a week. Right at the beginning, even at the beginning of this chapter 13, we see how the people of Jerusalem, they came together to listen to God's word. They were so eager, they were so on fire for God, they so wanted to live their lives as God wanted to live their lives. But notice how quickly their feelings for God changed once they were left to their own devices. You see, Nehemiah, he had to go back to Babylon to see the king. No doubt, this was a great nuisance to him. It was the last thing he wanted to do. He had so much work to do in Jerusalem. But he knew that the best way to, to honour God was to be obedient to his employer. So off he went. And uh, in chapter 13 it says that Nehemiah had gone for some time. We don't know how long, maybe a few weeks, a few months, a few years even. We just don't know. But then he returned. And as he walked up to the gates of Jerusalem, and he opened up the gates of Jerusalem, his eyes would have seen that city turned upside down and ruined. He must have had the same emotions as that couple did as they opened their front door and saw their house ransacked by their dog. He must have had the same emotions. As he walked down the streets of Jerusalem, his eyes must have come out on stalks and his jaw dropped to the floor as he saw how much that city had been overturned. And as he walked along, he would have seen the house of God, God's temple. And the first thing that he noticed is that the Levites were no longer lived or worked there. Now, the reason I believe they no longer lived or worked there is because the city saw no need for them. I mean, after all, come on, why do you need burnt offerings when you live in such a hot country? I mean, as for these grain offerings, weren't that just a waste of food? And come on, these priests, 
they have got to be having a laugh, a joke. I mean, when it came to wave offerings, I don't know if you know what a wave offering is. The, the Levites, they would get a, a, a lamb, rip a leg off, and then just wave it above the head. I mean, that's the priest having a laugh, and it was that doing. There was nothing. That wasn't that. It was a joke. So they kicked him out and said, get a proper job. But what the Jerusalem, people of Jerusalem didn't realise is that the Levites were a gift from God to his people. The Levites were the people that were taking the animals, would clean them, prepare them, slaughter them, wash them down and then sacrifice them to God for the sins of people and, as, and sins for the nation as well. And that was their main role. They would also be praying for people when they needed healing. They would um, be, be there to teach people how to live their lives for God. They would be just there for that nation. And also they were a spiritual guidance for the whole nation. But the thing was, because they were so busy, they never had time to go out and work. Because that was their main job. They couldn't even have a job on the top side. In the beginning, God gave all 12 tribes of Israel some land. But he didn't give any land to the Levites. Instead, he said, the Levites, I've got a special job for them. As for the rest of the 11 tribes, you go off to work and I want you to give 10% of all that you earn and produce and give it to the Levites. Now the Levites would take that 10% and they would sacrifice it or they would use it to honour God by building the temple up or doing repair work and the things that were left over they could feed themselves that way they wouldn't starve and that way they could honour God and be of service to God for his people in a much better state instead of starving you see. Now... I believe, and uh, you can shoot me down if you wish, but I think that every church should have a Levite. Most churches do have Levites, and we've got one. His name's Owen. Now I know that Owen doesn't wear priestly robes, and he doesn't drag along a cow every Sunday and slaughter it for us, although I think there's a few cows he wouldn't mind slaughtering. But, he's the guy that is there to help us to deepen our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's his main role to teach us how to live as Jesus wants us. He's to encourage us, to challenge us in our Christian life. He's the guy who's there to support us when things are going tough. He's the guy who's there rejoicing when things are going good for us. He's our main man for that sort of thing. But... Also, when we can't see him doing all these great things, he's not sat at home with his feet up watching Columbo. He's there praying for us. He's there studying the Word so he can teach it to us. He's there planning things for our future. He's there working things out so that we can have conferences, so that we can do things that make us grow, to challenge us, to make us grow as a deeper relationship with Jesus. He's doing so much more. And on top of that, he's got a family to support. And unlike me, he never seems to moan about any of it. (laughs) Now... The thing is, we as a church, because we're so small, we cannot afford to pay Owen to work for us full time. So he works one or two days a week and that's about it. And I think he does a good job in those few days. Now, some of you may say, well, I can't really afford to put £100 in the offering every week to support him. That's not how it goes. The Bible says that we should give 10% 
10% of our earnings and put that in the collection every Sunday. But it also says, and I'm going to stress this, it also says we should be happy giving that 10%. So that means if we're not happy, we work it out on our list of, uh, of our income, we say, well, 10% is this much, but I've got the mortgage, I've got the credit cards, I've got the parties, I've got the car to run. I can't afford, I'm not happy to give it because I'm going to go right in the red and I'm never going to survive and the family is going to suffer. Then give 5% or 2%, but be happy to give it and give it regularly. But some of you may say, ah, I can give more than that. I'll give 70, 80% each week. Well, that's fine. If you're happy to give that, but give it regularly. And also fill in these forms, see Dave or Owen, there's forms that you get your money back on these tax things. You can see that. But what we must not do is when the collection's going around the room, put our hands in our pockets and chuck in some loose change. Because Owen is not begging He's working for us. He's a gift from God to us. I and mean, that's what we need to remember. Right, second thing. Nehemiah, he sees that the Levites have been kicked out. And he also sees, as he looks at the temple of God, he notices, and I'm being a bit funny because I'm sure it says it in chapter 13 somewhere, but I'm not quite sure where. I think it's in the original Greek. But there used to be a plaque on the side of the wall on the temple. And it said something like, God's holy, organic, priestly grain store. Something like that anyway. That sign had been taken down. And a new sign had gone up. And it read something like this. Tobias Residence. Tobias Residence! Goodness me, Nehemiah's brains must have been in a scramble. He must have been going absolutely ballistic at this, going, what is that sign doing there? Do you remember who Tobiah was? Okay, for those who don't know, Tobiah is right at the beginning of this book. Tobiah is the guy that when Nehemiah first started building the walls of Jerusalem, Tobiah came along and said, ha 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 what's that you're doing there? What have you got? You're never going to build a wall of Jerusalem again. Look at the people you're with. They're deflated and a bunch of loonies they are. And that's for you. You're not skilled. All you can do is eat and drink. That's all you're skilled in doing. You're a waste of time. If a little fox jumps on your wall, it'll all crumble away. Ha <laughs> ha, useless bunch of idiots. And then, as the walls got larger and they came together, he came back and he wrote death threats to the Israelites saying, you carry on building the wall, I'm going to make sure you're all dead. And the walls kept growing and they got bigger and they got stronger. And he wrote letters to the other nations saying, hey, we've got to stop this, this isn't right. We should not allow this wall to be built. We've got to do everything in our power to stop these walls being built. But now, all of a sudden, he's actually living in the same walls that Nehemiah and the Israelites built with all their blood, sweat, tears, everything that they had. And he's living there in the lap of luxury in the house of God. Not just any old house, but actually in the house of God. Now, how on earth did he get there? Maybe, just maybe... One night, when everything was dark and black, and nobody could see it, he snuck through the city gates and just sort of wheedled his way into there. That wasn't it. Maybe Nehemiah got some mates, and they charged the city 
and they gallantly fought their way in and they conquered that little bit and they came to some agreement that if they stopped fighting they could have that little room that wasn't it either possibly because he had bags of money he went up to the guards and he bribed the guards he bribed the priests he bribed the estate agent and he got a house that wasn't it either Unbelievable. The real reason why he was there, and this is really sick actually, because all the things that I've just said are more believable than the actual reason, actual way he got there. Because sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. The actual truth is that he was invited, invited to live in that house. Now you're saying to me, Malcolm, who in their right mind would invite him? Look, it's in the Bible, because the Bible's true, so I'm going to read it out to you. Uh, chapter 13, verse 4 and 5 says this. Before this, Elishib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and all the other things. It invited him there. Absolutely mental. It was, it was like a Pakistani family inviting a member of the National Front to come and lodge with them. Now you might say, that's crazy, that's metal, that's just asking for trouble, and it was. And you might also say, but Malcolm, we'd never do that, would we? Okay, if you look at the New Testament, you've got Jesus, and he's walking around, and he's doing a bit of this and a bit of that, and he's doing his bit for Britain, and the Pharisees don't like it. And so they say, don't bother with Jesus. He's just an idiot. Don't worry about him. But he gets a greater following. More and more, and more people are following him. So the Pharisees get a bit more cross at this. They don't like this. So they're laying down the law and saying, listen, the only way to God is by following his commandments. You've got to be a good person. You have got to live as God wants you to live. That's the only way to God. And Jesus went around saying, actually, God loves you just the way you are. And it's by your relationship with Jesus, it's by your relationship with God, that makes you want to do the follow his commandments. Well, the Pharisees went ballistic. They were going, you can't say things like that. That's not right. And so they walked up to Jesus, spat in his face and crucified him. Now as you know, three days later he rose from the dead. Hooray! Fantastic. Marvellous. And then he got a greater following. Churches were springing up here, there, everywhere. There was a church over there, church. There were churches flying all over the place. Now in some of those churches, they weren't very bright. And they come up with this great idea. Some people said, duh. We don't know a lot about Jesus and his following. Uh, who could teach us about the ways of God? I know, some friendly Pharisees, they know all about God. They could come to our church and teach us. And so the Pharisees come in. And that's why you get books like the book of Galatians and other things where Paul says, what a stupid idiot allowed these guys to come into the church. Kick them out. Now you might say, but Malcolm, listen, listen, listen. That was 2,000 years ago. We would never, never do anything like that. We would never invite a loony like that into our church. Now, please, please, please listen to me carefully because sometimes I stand up here and I say things and people get the wrong idea and I get told off for some things I say. But listen to this. <coughs> right, I am not 
saying, I am not prophesying, I'm not saying this is going to happen to this church, I'm not saying everyone who joins our church from now on is evil and nasty and horrible, I'm not saying that we're the best church in the world, I'm not saying that all the other churches are better than us, okay, I strongly believe that we can learn a lot from a lot of other denominations and a lot of denominations can learn a lot from us, okay, I don't think we could stand up there beating our denomination drum saying we're the best, okay, I don't like that, I've seen it happen and I don't agree with it, so I'm not saying that, but listen, do you believe in Jesus? No? Oh, alright, <laughs> let me ask again, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Have you set us free? We've only got a small number here, folks. That's why we're not getting many voices. Right. Okay. A lot of, well, some churches, not a lot, but some churches will say, they claim that they live by grace, but they preach the law. And there are some Christians in those churches that feel stifled, as if they're in a straitjacket. They want to praise God with all their heart, and they feel they can't because... Well, the church don't really allow that sort of thing. And they're frowned upon if they want to dance or put their hand up or something or they want to express themselves and they don't like that. So, and then they might come into contact with one of us. Might be at work, might be in a shop, might be in the street, but we come into contact with whatever way. And we get talking and stuff and they go, wow, you're amazing, you're fantastic. Do you know, your Christian life is real to you. How come? It's so brilliant, it's so fantastic. And we say, well, actually, it's, a, it's the church. It's the gateway, Doncaster Church. It's brilliant, marvellous. You should come along sometime. Oh, why not come along to that? And they come through the door and they say, wow, it's amazing. What a, look, you sing, you dance, you put your hands on your clothes. You've got people at the front giving testimonies and you've got people coming at the front reading the Bible and saying that God spoke to them. God spoke to them, amazing. It's a brilliant, I love it. Oh, it's got teas and coffees and chocolate biscuits. Oh, I love this church. It's so brilliant. I've got to come again. And they come and they come and they come. And about a month later, they start sitting here and they say, well, it's a really good church. A really good church. But I've noticed communion. I like communion. But I think your communion's a bit funny, you see. I think, because in our other church, we should have proper communion wine. Grapes that have been grown in Jerusalem, shipped over, the wine bowls shipped over from Jerusalem. Because after all, Jesus said, and it says in the Bible, I'm going to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And obviously, in Jerusalem is where Jesus was crucified, and the blood dripped in the ground, and all the grapes, the vines suck up his blood, and it's in the ground, and we eat his blood. Hey, uh, you, don't you think I'm joking? You, you hear these things, honestly. Right, you might get them coming in and saying, well, I like the way that everybody can come to the front and read the Bible and testify and prophesy. Ah, silly. But you women, it's in the Bible. You've got to wear them hats. You've got to wear those hats. It says it. It's scriptural. Or you might get, well, you know, it's a brilliant church, but it's a really good church. But something's really lacking. We never, ever, I've never in my life, I've been here for 15 years or 15 months, and I've never heard one sermon about the second coming of Jesus. Nothing. There's nothing. But I'm telling you, they'll tell you that the only way that you're going to be picked up by the rapture is if you're wearing Nike trainers. And, and now, listen. <laughs> All these things happen because the truth is very often disguised by wrong things so easily.
And one sad thing is, and this is why I tell you to get to know your Bibles. Please, please get to know your Bibles. Read it, study it, understand it more. Get commentaries, brilliant stuff. Get to know your Bibles because people like that can possibly, could possibly come into our church and try and divide us that way. Now, one thing that a lot of Christians don't understand or don't know, which is I think is very, very sad, is the fact that there is just as much... I saw those peanuts had for breakfast. Right. One sad thing about that people don't understand, and Christians don't seem to understand this bit, is that in the Old Testament there's just as much grace from God as there is in the New Testament. And they don't understand that. And that's why we need to know our Bibles and understand it. In Romans chapter 7 verse 6 it says that we have been released from the law. And we need to remember that. Anyway, back to Nehemiah. He's looking at the house of God. He sees that the Levites have been kicked out. He sees that Tobiah is now there with his pipe and slippers and watching Coronation Street in the house of God. So what does Nehemiah do? How would he feel? Well, you're not going to tell me, I'll tell you. He was angry. He was missed. He was angry. He wasn't just angry. He was fuming. He was absolutely, he was raging. He was wild. And do you know what he did? The first thing he did, he storms up to Tobiah's house. He doesn't bother ringing the doorbell. He just kicks the door in. He just marches in and he throws out all the furniture. The settees, the TVs, the video players, the bed. He chucks the whole and then he looks around, he sees Tobiah, he gets hold of him, and he frog marches him up to the city gate and kicks him out as well. And the next thing he does, he gets the Levites, and he calls them around, and he gets says, Go right, get back to work, you lot. And then he calls the rest of the Israelites around him. And there's a right guy there, and calls them all a bunch of stupid wazzocks for what they've been doing. Can you imagine Owen doing that to us? But that is precisely, exactly what we need. But not just Owen. We need a church full of angry people. People who are passionate about Jesus. People who are passionate about their faith. People who are passionate about the truth. People who speak the truth, whether it's popular or not. People that are prepared to stir each other up. And yeah, it's good that we come to church. It's really important that we come to church on a Sunday. Very important. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because of our relationship with Jesus. That's why we come to church, to be there for each other. And it's great that we praise God, that we honour God. It's great that we worship God with all our heart, mind, soul and give Him everything that we've got. And it's brilliant that we study the Bible, that we, we listen to what, how Christ wants us to live our lives and that we get filled with the Holy Spirit and we get our batteries recharged for the week ahead. And then, at the end of the service, when we've had our teas and our coffees, when we've spoken to each other about the weather and how our week's been, when it's time to go home, we get to the church doors, when we open those doors and we see a world, God's world, God's world that's been entrusted to us, when we see that world that's been turned upside down and ransacked, 
And when we see people walking past whose lives have been ripped apart and lay in ruins, and when we see certain churches that have got Tobias of this world leading them, then we too ought to get angry and want to do something about it. As Christians, it's our responsibility to encourage and to challenge each other to go forward in our Christian walk. Not leave all that sort of thing to Owen and just hope, well, if he doesn't know I've done something wrong, he'll hope he won't find out about it. We all are responsible and accountable to each other. To stir each other up in our Christian walk. And to make sure, please, 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 make sure that not one of us, not a single one of us, and especially me, get entrapped in that uh, spiritual western stronghold known as a comfort zone. I mean, I love it. I love being comfortable, especially got kids and everything else. I think it's great. But it's horrible because you miss out on so much of God's blessings and what God can do through you. I thought it was great earlier on. The first thing that was said about this woman who... um, was just a nominal Christian, had a near-death experience and Jesus was crying. How much does he cry over us because of our lack of faith, because we can't be bothered, because we make excuses about mortgage the kids and swapping schools and all those other things. And I think that's something that we need to keep away from and keep each other away from as well. So, also, we need to be pushing each other Pushing each other to have greater experiences with Jesus. Greater experiences of the Holy Spirit. But also having the wisdom to know when to step back and have our arms open wide. Because every now and again, one or two of us will fall away. But we need to be there with arms open wide, ready to restore our brothers and sisters back to Christ. So, Nehemiah, he spent years, literally years and years and years teaching the people of Jerusalem how to live as God wanted them to live. They had seen great miracles happening as they built the wall. They had disaster coming from every side and they saw how God cut through it all. The walls were built in a miraculous timing. It was fantastic. They saw all that. But once Nehemiah had gone and they were left to their devices, they blew it. They just walked away and blew it. We, on the other hand, we've got the Holy Spirit with us. And he will never leave us. He's never going to walk off and forget about us. He has promised. He won't change his mind and think, oh, you're smelling, I don't like living in you because all the burgers you eat. He's going to stay with us all the time. He's never going to go. But that means that we must have the courage to allow him to work through us. So that, and in us, so that he can do greater things, so that he can restore this nation using each one of us, so that he can restore this town, Doncaster, so that he even can restore this church as well. We need just to be, just be able to stand up and be counted. So, the walls of Jerusalem, they've been rebuilt, and everything's hunky-dory. And that's it really, except to say this. As you read the last part of uh, Nehemiah, you'll notice that uh, even though everything was uh, restored, the Levites were restored, 
Tobiah was kicked out and everyone had a good telling off. Everybody wanted to go back to following God. Everybody wanted to go back to this living as God wanted them to. But, every now and again, they'd make a mistake. They'd blow it here. Oh, they'd do something wrong there. But then they'd pick themselves up and say, yeah, let's go for God. Some people would fall away and then others would do something else wrong. And they'd be rebuked and brought back to God. And that's how we need to be as a church. We all make mistakes. I make millions and millions of mistakes each day. But we need to be always aiming at Jesus all the time. Constantly aiming at Jesus and restoring this church, this nation. Now we've been told that we've got a history book about this church. And uh, we've been turned to a blank page. So, my question to all and every one of us is this. What amazing, fantastic, marvellous things are we going to do for God, for Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, for this nation, for this church, that are going to be written down in that history book, so that when people read it, they too will be amazed at our achievements, because we've relied on God. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.